Hello, and welcome to the Cold Pizza Party Podcast. My name's Lubitsa. My co-host's name is Adam. He's not here right now because I'm recording this intro after our conversation. He just left to go to work, but we recorded a quick episode during lunch, which was initially just going to be like a extra or maybe tacked on to a different episode, but was so long that it's now its own episode, which you will be listening to in just a moment. I just wanted to say at the top, because we talk in this episode about how bad we are at self-promotion, that uh, we would really appreciate if you wanted to rate us on iTunes or follow us on, or subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook. All of those are at Cold Pizza Party. Uh, We really appreciate it. Um, because even though we love doing this podcast for ourselves, it's also really cool when more people listen. Okay, so that's it. Without further ado, uh, let's go into this episode that we recorded during lunch on a Friday. Uh, There are a lot of room sounds, but you can hear us quite clearly, so I don't think it should be a problem, but if you're annoyed by that sort of thing, just heads up. And Adam always says that we should really tell people that if they're not into the first 15 minutes, they should keep listening because as we keep going we basically get on more and more of a roll uh, which definitely happened this episode especially because it's uh, much less structured than our usual episodes so keep that in mind too and hopefully you'll like it okay bye So we're recording. Okay. We're in the kitchen. We're cooking. You might hear the pleasant sounds of things frying. Yeah, should I take the mic over to give people a sound of... If you want to. Or maybe... Yeah. Too hot. Too hot to move. Some pleasant audio. Some room sounds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're on a, I'm on my lunch break, so we're quickly cooking up some veggies while we also were talking about this, uh, BuzzFeed news article that came out, I think it came out, what, like yesterday or something? I saw people tweeting about it and I had it added to my reading list and then this morning Adam was like, have you heard of this article? (laughs) Like, yeah, I didn't actually plan to read it. I was like, whatever, but then I did. Yeah, it's quite long, but. It's pretty interesting. It's called How Bright... No. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's called... Um, yeah. Here's How Breitbart and Milo Smuggled Nazi and White Nationalist Ideas into the Mainstream. So there's like a lot you could talk about with this article. I think we're just going to kind of go off of our like things that were interesting to us and impressions yeah. because we both just read it like this morning and haven't had a ton of time to think about it, but... It's first already thing, slipping away from me. Yeah, Let's but the first thing that I wanted to talk to Adam about that I texted him about because I couldn't even wait for him to get Frantically. home. When he <laughs> knew I was driving, yeah. he didn't read it. Couldn't even wait for him to get home. Um, was, okay. I can, but see, this is good that I texted it to you because now I can easily cite the parts that I wanted to. So this text wasn't even for me. Um, well, in a way. Uh, so, okay, I said... Uh, The piece was interesting, but the part that interested me the most was, quote, 
Curtis Yarvin, a software engineer who under the Gnome de Plume Mencius mold bug helped create the quote neo-reactionary end quote movement which holds the enlightenment that enlightenment democracy has failed and that a return to feudalism and authoritarian rule is in order. Okay, so that I thought that was like I had already talked to Adam about something that I thought I saw happening and then when I read that I would, thought it was interesting. But then later on it got even more interesting with this quote. Uh, Teal invited the Breitbart tech editor for talking about of Milo uh, for dinner at his Hollywood Hills home in June, a dinner Yiannopoulos boasted of the same night to Bannon. Quote, you two should meet, an obvious candidate for movie financing if we got external. Uh, he has fucked Gawker media founder Nick Denton and Gawker so many ways it brought a tear to my eye. They made plans to meet during the July Republican National Convention. But much of Yiannopoulos' knowledge of Teal seemed to come secondhand from other right-wing activists, as well as Curtis Yarvin, the blogger who advocates the return of feudalism. In an email exchange shortly after the election, Yarvin told Yiannopoulos that he had been, quote, coaching Teal. Peter needs guidance on politics for sure, Yiannopoulos responded. Less than you might think, Yarvin wrote back. I watched the election at his house. I think... My hangover lasted into Tuesday. He's fully enlightened, just plays it very carefully. Okay, so what I was saying to Adam is that I remember during Hurricane Harvey, my mom was here and we were talking about universal basic income because, uh, you know, people, I think like, I don't know, Mark Zuckerberg came out in favor of it or something and it, she hadn't like heard of it before and we were telling her about how we think it's like good if it comes with other reforms like, you know, um, like Medicare for all, free education, uh, free or seriously subsidized housing, things like that, right? Because otherwise, obviously, the cost of basic necessities like housing would just go up with the, the universal basic income. So that wouldn't really be useful to people. But then I was saying to Adam, it really freaks me out in some ways, universal basic income, because we had just been listening to like a dollop about Uber and stuff like that and how Uber's business model, but also Amazon and a lot of these other tech companies, their business model is to like run at a loss until they put out of business all of their competitors. And a lot of the people who have like invested in Uber are people like, like Jay-Z and Ashton Kutcher and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And I was just like, man, like what attracts people to this business model? What's the point of this business model? You're going to put everyone else out of business and then you're going to be the only one who owns anything, right? Like, especially when you think of like Amazon. Amazon has put out of business bookstores and now is getting into grocery stores and things like that, right? And basically like they, ins they just put out of business bookstores and now they're opening brick and mortar stores, right? So the idea is just that they will own all of those things. Not that they're gonna change society in some mm -hmm. meaningful way, right? Yeah. This was all like a big plot for them to be the ones that own the all the stores, basically. Yeah. And I was saying to you, so what does that mean? They're gonna own more and more and more of our society, and meanwhile, we're going to have this like little universal basic income for now, for the time being, and then slowly we'll become feudal serfs and we'll each be like fighting each other in favor of our, you know, Lord Amazon or Lord Uber or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. and I just cannot believe that I was saying that to you, but I was joking, thinking I'm being paranoid. This is like the extreme end logic of all of this. And then to find out that Peter Thiel 
venture capitalist, Silicon Valley guy, Peter Thiel, is most closely in touch with the guy who specifically advocates that enlightenment has failed and we need to return to feudalism, mm -hmm. is like, you know, like mind blown. Like, I can't believe I was fucking right. <laughs> like, yeah. Why is he so close to Peter Thiel? Probably because his ideology lines up with Peter Thiel's. Yeah. So anyway, that was the part that stood out the most to me. They have another quote from Moldbug in here where uh, he says, like, he's okay with a bunch of different ethnicities, uh, or some at least. He says, uh, this is not optimal, but with a competent king, it's not such a huge problem either. And I literally said to you, I was saying to you, they're going to be kings while we're serfs. We're returning to having kings. Yeah. That's exactly what I was saying to you, and it's just incredible to me. That instead of that being like some crazy idea that I had in our kitchen one day, that's what these people are fucking devoting their billions towards. Yeah. And think about how liberals would be okay with Peter Thiel or Elon Musk being in charge of everything as long as they demonstrated like a nominal commitment to diversity. And competency, right? Yeah. They're, they're always so excited that Mike Pence is competent. Mm -hmm. It's like competent to do what? Like I only mention that because... Expedite like, fascism? Like, yeah. Yeah. What? Why are we excited that he's competent? Like, I'm not. That doesn't bring me joy or happiness. Like, it certainly doesn't make yeah. me feel better. But so, mold bugs. Like, if we have a competent leader who's strong, then we can handle having a bunch of different diversity in this country. Yeah. And liberals are the same way. They don't think Trump is a competent leader, so now they're concerned. Yeah. Exactly. About, yeah. Um. So, what else stood out to you about the piece? That to what me was like the say? big one. Yeah. I, one other thing that really stood out to me, sorry, I'm like opening this container. Uh, one other thing that really stood out to me was the, um, like the way Milo manipulated that guy that's like under him, his Borkin under or Borkick or whatever the fuck his name is, Alum. Yeah. And uh, especially... Alum Bakari. Yeah, especially for um, bylines. Yeah. Like he had this big definitive piece of the alt-right and he like used his contacts to reach out to a bunch of people in the alt-right like people that run like stormfront and new Rena american renaissance magazine or yeah. some shit like that and then he compiled like all these sources and then he just forwarded all that stuff to that guy he just, like write it up and yeah <laughs> and then the guy did so much work that he wanted like a co-byline yeah and he um and milo, milo was scheming behind the scenes yeah he was telling the bosses i didn't like He's pushing for it, but I don't want him on there, so I'm going to tell yeah. him you guys don't want it. And then he emailed. And was like, oh, yeah. management just really doesn't yeah. think it's a good idea. They just want it to be my byline because it's, like, less problematic that way or whatever. Yeah. And it was and he just... he was like, what are you talking about? It's way less problematic if you have, like, an ethnic-sounding name on the byline. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that argument probably... Although maybe... I mean, I guess Yiannopoulos might be an ethnic-sounding name. It's pretty Greek. But, uh, I don't know, I just thought it was really interesting that he, it, that was just like such weird basic work politics that came through. To be clear, this is a, BuzzFeed obtained a bunch of emails from Breitbart and yeah. Yiannopoulos' account, it looks like, specifically, right? Because, I mean, they seem, all of these seem to... Did you see the part about his passwords? Yeah. That's so freaky. It's really freaky. So... We shouldn't, like, spend too much time just recounting the article because people... Can no, I don't... It. That's why I was saying we should just pull out yeah. the parts that we're interested in or that stood out to yeah. us. But in case you don't read it if, and you're listening, his passwords were, like, Crystal Knocked and Night of the Long Knives. Yeah, Night of the Long Knives 1219 or something like that because that's the year... Out, yeah. 
some king expelled the Jews out of wherever. Yeah. And like, yeah, it was really creepy. And the long knives part was the part where, yeah, like, that's when the Nazis um what purged the SA who were like the original mm-hmm. the, like the people who started like Kristallnacht and stuff yeah. like that and specifically purged the gay leader of yeah. the SA. Yeah. Which I thought was really weird psychology on Milo's part as a very openly gay man. Yeah. He probably thinks it's funny. I guess. Yeah. It's really, really fucking self-hating, but... Yeah. Uh, the other thing that stood out, but it's getting a lot of coverage, which I think is a shame. It's not the most important thing from this article, but that there were, like, liberal writers who had emailed Milo and given him tips and yeah. stuff. It is um, egregious. Yeah, especially the, the one, one that stood out to me the most was the Broadly one. The editor of Broadly, yeah, yeah. which is like Vice's like reaching out to women yeah. effort. And uh, he like forwarded some article, Lindy West, who's like a fat acceptance mm-hmm. uh, yeah. person, had written and it was just like, make fun of this fat feminist for me or whatever. Yep. And that was, I don't know, I thought that was interesting but isn't vice wasn't one of vice's founders the person who ultimately helped found like the proud boys yeah so i guess it's not surprising that they're did you notice how many people reached out from silicon valley who are like upset that their you know bosses or peers had been caught up in like sexual abuse allegations yeah yeah and Um, they felt like and people from like e-news and stuff like that i thought that one was interesting and that person was like i'm at your disposal like i'll help However I can, my colleagues have become insufferable or whatever. I love the uh, former NASA tech who said, Jet Propulsion Lab is, like, totally oh, cucked. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you sent me that one this yeah. morning. Yeah. Um, pretty weird. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only other... It's really fascinating, too, how, how much vitriol towards Anita Sarkeesian and Zoe Quinn... I couldn't radicalized believe. ...radicalized people, like... I couldn't believe, like, who was it that sent them, like... Really private details about like who she. Uh, it was the, either the. Who she was like dating and stuff like that. Yeah. I couldn't believe that anyone would even think that that was appropriate. It was like someone kind of high up, wasn't it? Uh, the person who mentioned Zoe Quinn was actually the. It says veteran tech reporter who went on to write for or work for Slate, right? Silicon Valley. Oh, the but TV there's show. like a Slate writer. And that well, was he mentioned called. he mentioned Zoe Quinn. He's the only one in this article because he just sent a picture to Milo and was like. Does she look like a, a boy? Like, oh, yeah. Is she like trans? trans? Right. And Milo said, uh, she's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> he said, she is a girl, a hideous girl, but a girl. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, no, the other thing you're thinking of is, uh, I think it was Dan Auerbach who wrote for Slate, or wrote for The Nation. He wrote for Slate. Slate. Yeah. Um, who sent details about like Anita Sarkeesian's boyfriend yeah, or something that's what to, was, yeah. and, and speculated that he was the one doing all the work and she was taking the credit <laughs> yeah the the amount of times why I don't know the, they it's astounding like I know it should be obvious that they always try to cut down women by saying they're just doing it for the attention yeah but it's astounding how often it happens the fact that fucking was it Mike Pompeo who wrote to uh, was it fucking Harvard or Yale that um, Chelsea Manning was going to get a post at? Yeah. And he said that she was just doing it for attention and to become famous. Yeah. Like, that's so horrendous. And if she had never transitioned, he probably wouldn't even think of that. 
Even yeah. though he went to great pains to say this is not about her, you know. Yeah, right. Transness. Yeah. Yeah, right. But then he attacks her in this like typical misogynistic way. Yeah. Um, yeah, the main other thing that I found really interesting was um, sort of the way everything was structured. So you had like the, you know, Breitbart editors at the top, like Bannon or Marlowe or whatever yeah. his name is. And then you had uh, like Milo and then Milo sort of connected everyone that was like alt-right, you know, riffraff, you know? Mm -hmm. It was like people from Daily Stormer and this um, Saucier, Devin Saucier or whatever, this like guy who is like a white nationalist he's like woman a, boy. Yeah, he's like a white nationalist activist who writes uh, for Yiannopoulos like described as his best or friend. Something? Yeah. Yeah, new American Renaissance. Yeah, and then um, all these other people too that were like writing in tips to him that were just basically like trolls on message boards that would go and write into him on his email, like some of the accounts we talked about. They like also triggered stories. What did she eat? I don't know. What is that? Uh oh. This is some kind of plug. <laughs> Oche! What is this? Where did you even find this? You're gonna get electrocuted. Um, just the way everything was like structured so that uh, there's basically like plausible deniability, right? So that mm -hmm. the um, Bannon and like that guy Marlowe and stuff could like maintain mainstream credibility. Yeah. While uh, Yiannopoulos was essentially channeling all of this alt-right riffraff towards them in the form of both these, like, you know, fringy, white nationalist, anti-Semitic assholes that, like, run their own little websites, mm -hmm. but also just, like, those these regular people who would write into him with, like, complaints or whatever. And then he also connected, like, the Mercers into all of this. I mean, yeah. Bannon is most directly connected to them, but then, you know, they they liked Yiannopoulos, and Yiannopoulos helped, like, when some Their... Hillary game didn't get approved in the Apple store by writing a story they, about yeah, it. Yeah, they just wanted to make it a story. I'm just saying, like, it's... And they succeeded and got it back It goes... He, like, connects everyone from the Mercers through, like, trolls that write on Breitbart message boards and message him personally because they yeah. they think he's their friend, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. And I just thought that was really interesting because it, you would think, like, well, that shouldn't work. Like, it's obvious that that's just a thin, you know, veneer of respectability that Bannon or Marlowe or whoever hold. And that in reality, like, they're obviously just as racist as the trolls that Milo is, like, you know, forwarding tips yeah. from. But it does work. Marlo, that guy has been on Bill Maher, as has Yiannopoulos. Oh, uh, really? And Bannon obviously is like was in the White House, and yeah. And, and Breitbart, it says Breitbart was trying to sue news outlets that called them uh, white like nationalists. Nationalist. Yeah, yeah. So it does work, even yeah. though you would think like, well, this is just stupid. Who cares about even having this? And everybody knows, don't yeah. they? No, they don't. Like especially old people like Bill yeah. Maher do not understand and at all. All the trolls on that side. Um, and by trolls, I just mean people who believe in this shit. Yeah. Uh, constantly say Milo's not a racist. He he has a well, black he's, exactly, husband. Yeah. Breitbart's not racist. And because he's gay. And yeah. because, oh, they have Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew. 
I mean, I yeah. like got into a fight with someone in YouTube comments recently, and that was like his main defense of the alt right was like, how can we be racist and anti Semitic if we have these people mm -hmm. in our ranks? And it's like, what? Like, also, it's funny because they're so against identity politics, but then they also use identity yeah. politics to justify their yeah. own ideology. That's because of, you know, what Cory Robin wrote about the conservative mindset is just reactionary. Yeah. And that they just take they're, on. they're constantly improvising yeah. and they're constantly taking cues from the left and repurposing it to their own, own goals, which yes, is why I will tell you, they get really pissed off if you claim that they're triggered. I, I said that this know, guy yeah. was triggered because he was mad about a comment that I made on YouTube, and he was like, oh, a fucking, like, libtard saying we're triggered? And then I said, oh, man, that definitely triggered you. You're really, like, butthurt hemorrhoid, whatever, because mm -hmm. his name rhymed with hemorrhoid. And he got <laughs> so, so pissed. He called me the N-word. Yeah. Which was just incredible, because I think it, it shows, like, really clearly. He said you one, type, that he was. He said you type, like, I know. the N-word. Yeah. Yeah. But also, it's just so funny, because just using that word, he was like, no, that's our word, you know? So it's like just using that tactic against them that they use of like reacting dynamically to the situation and changing up your game to meet their game really seem to like Get them fucking upset, piss yeah. them off. Yeah. And also really, people are still out standing for the Google memo. I know. I, I hate using the word stand. I don't know why I'm doing it lately. But well, anyway. it's hard not to. Yeah. Uh... And they get really upset when you just tell them, because as soon as you criticize it, they say, you didn't even read it. I know. Because they think that they are just so rational and um, intelligent. and yes. Intelligent in like a common sense way that, oh, everybody should think what I think, but they are brainwashed by, you know, globalists or liberals or whatever. Um, multiculturalists. What is going on? Sorry, this dog is distracting. Oh, but when you tell them I read the memo and it's stupid, yeah, they like get upset and they don't know how to respond. Yeah, I don't know. It's just and funny. actually every time I've said that to them, they'll say you obviously didn't read. Yeah, it because uh, because you don't agree with me. Yeah, you know, and actually the mold bug is the same way. Like he's the dark enlightenment guy, so it's not that he's anti enlightenment. I don't think they're character. Maybe he is. I don't. I've only skimmed. A little bit of his stuff before but uh he's basically one of the alt-right people that argue that you know i'm rational i'm like the intelligent one uh liberals would believe us but they're blind to the facts yeah i'm listening sorry i'm also cooking here okay. so okay this is done so we can okay. eat okay uh so should we just wrap it up there is there uh, anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, well, I forgot I was going to mention a second ago. Because conservatives are reactionary, even though we're not... We like... what We didn't read Angela Nagel's book. Maybe we will. But I think both of us like most of her articles and appearances, but fundamentally disagree on some things. Like, because conservatives are reactionary, there's no point blaming the left, even just like the shallow PC left. Yeah. for stoking them because yeah, they will always react yeah, that's like they literally their mo this, yeah. yeah if if instead what was in vogue in 2014 on the internet was class politics and instead of you know tumblr sjw's it was dsa people rose yeah. emojis or whatever they would have just adopted that language yeah so and then we'd have to deal with liberals mainstream liberals like mark lilla doing the exact same argument but criticizing class politics instead of political correctness yeah 
Yeah, uh, there was also a really good cracked some news video about um, Antifa and how the right actually behaves. And one of the things that he pointed out was that like on the left, we do like a good faith argument and right. we like really stick to our words. And on the right, they don't. And they think it's like really funny to not engage in a good faith argument and to just sort of like be all over the place and... I don't know, he actually basically read, like, a Sartre yeah. quote. The one from his works on anti-Semitism. Yeah. And I've never, I've never been that much into Sartre because I, because he's too cool and I'm too cool to be into it because it's too, like, popular. So you, you like Camus instead. Yeah, I like Camus and Beauvoir more. Mm-hmm. But, um, man, that quote from Sartre about anti-Semitism yeah, is so... Spot on. Yeah. Yeah. So now I have, like... Yeah, should we just from that quote? Let's see. People have probably seen it. I have definitely seen it before, um, but I think it's worth reading here so that people who are listening right now can. Oh, here we go. Never believe that the anti Semites are completely unaware of the absurdity of their replies. They know that their remarks are frivolous, open to challenge, but they are amusing themselves, for it is their adversary who is obliged to use words responsibly, since he believes in words. The anti-Semites have the right to play. They even like to play with the discourse for, by giving ridiculous reasons, they discredit the seriousness of their interlocutors. They delight in acting in bad faith, since they seek not to persuade by sound argument, but to intimidate and disconcert. If you press them too closely, they will abruptly fall silent, loftily indicating by some phrase that the time for argument is past. You did a good job reading that, baby. Thanks, baby. Yeah. The other thing I was going to mention, and it kind of goes along, is uh, we want in the BuzzFeed article, we, the other thing that's really worth seeing is just um, Steve Bannon's verbatim emails and quotes that they send out from his emails. Yeah. Yeah. The way he speaks, dude, that dude is whack. Like, he's such a, like, that's like, how old are you? Yeah. Like, what is this language you're using? Yeah. Like, uh, but I feel also, like I'm too old to speak like that. Yeah. Uh, we should probably look for a quote from the article, but also because of how convinced he is that he is really fighting a war. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me was the way they speak in terms of, yeah, like, basically like mm-hmm. him telling Yiannopoulos, like, put your big boy pants yeah. on. Where I have that one here. He okay. said, dude. <laughs> We are. I know, I reread it. Sorry, but yeah, because of the way it was written and stuff, I reread it three times thinking, wait, who's saying dude? It must be Yiannopoulos saying this to Bannon. Or is Bannon being ironic or sarcastic or something? No, that's just how he talks. But it's that thing, like they, uh, because words don't have. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're playing with. But it's like deadly serious play. Um, That's like. They're like LARPing. I mean, what I'm seeing here is people literally like live action role playing all the time like so so deep in they they think they're like legit going to save the western world because it's legit under attack like yeah yeah um so bannon starts the email with dude we are letter r in a global a global existential war where our enemy capital exists in social media and you are jerking yourself off with marginalia letter u letter r um five exclamation points (laughs) You should be owning this conversation because you are everything they hate. Drop your toys. 
pick up your tools and go help save Western civilization. Yeah, and by this, posting. I Literally know. Literally by posting. I know, and this is how all the emails are from Bannon. They're all like this aggrandized sense of self and their project and what they're and the doing. the dangers that they're facing. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it's, you guys are just online trolls. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, then Milo just responds kind of um, apologetically a little bit. And Bannon says, just get into the fight. You are social media, and they have made it a powerful weapon of war. I, I really want to do an episode where we do a bit of a deeper dive into Bannon's ideology and stuff. Even though yeah. it's a little less timely now, I think it's still It's still interesting. super interesting. Stuff that I've read about it is yeah. like fascinating to me. Yeah. So some other quotes are that he calls Breitbart his killing machine. Yeah. Yeah. There's some other emails in here that I want to find, but I don't know how to search for it. He constantly, apparently uses the phrase hashtag war in his emails and that's that's why i was talking about irony because to them it's ironic but it's still serious yeah yeah i guess we've talked about that before at least amongst each other yeah you know off recording yeah that um we feel like our generation grew up with irony in a way that was different from gen x where irony wasn't necessarily about disaffection or apathy but about a way to actually earnestly engage. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look at the way irony is deployed online, or even like if you listen to Chapo Trap House or something like that, like Felix, Felix, I've noticed like tends to be the most ironic when he's the most passionate about something that he thinks is particularly like unjust, like Mm -hmm. war in the Middle East or something like that, you know? And I think a lot of people do that. We use like irony as a way to emphasize how deadly serious we actually are about something. But I think people who are older, I don't know, it's like irony like broke their brains or something. Like they're too mm-hmm. old when they got online or started really like posting a lot yeah. to fully understand how the rest of us use it and speak to each it's other. It's kind of surprising to me because there's all that like academic, I don't know, political science or sociological point of view that um, cognitive dissonance is inherently American, mm-hmm. but they can't seem to handle it. My other big example of irony and earnestness would be like, you know, like Taolin and stuff, like outlet stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that They used to call it the new sentimentality or something, okay. where you can just be at the same time detached and extremely personal and very, it's very plain written, um, but at the same time, that's the artisticness of it. So you're doing it as if to say like, is this even a poem? Because I'm just like telling you what happened during my day. Mm. But like that in that process you reveal yourself and emotions and you know yeah yeah although has that gone too far did you see the articles by that uh, about that instagram poet that's totally different rupi Kaur. that's yeah. no it's totally different the style isn't even the same it's just terrible yeah, i it's... mean it's just the poet i don't know why her focus is trying to be a poet she's obviously like based on the articles that i've yeah. read just really interested in like design and photography and the way book covers look and shit like that yeah which is a career path like go do that yeah. like but the poetry is so, i mean poetry is a very generous term to use for know, what are yeah. essentially just like like love inspo platitudes you know just like yeah. uh, i the, can't be in a relationship that drains me of energy reflections root b co or whatever you yeah. know what i mean it's stuff like that it's just like there's a few cool. there's a few that are like okay for like normal people like she has the one where she drew a tornado it's still pretty cheesy but she's like you're 
uh, like you should know that your body is a museum of natural disasters and it's beautiful. And then she signs it, Rupi Carter. But that's what I'm saying. At it's least, like at love least in inspo. That one, that's like body positivity. I know, inspo. I know. But like, at least in that one, there's like an image, right? The yeah. idea of a body as a museum of disaster. Yeah, it's at least interesting. Yeah. 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 But most of it is bad. But that's like how I felt about in like MP, her period but... sweatpants photograph, you I know? I thought that was cool. I thought it was cool at the time too, but I didn't know there was like poetry and shit attached to it. I just thought like that's a cool image. It's part of a branding exercise. And if you know. she did like that? a series of I don't know, women on their period and in period stains and different moments and place I don't know, it could be interesting maybe. Yeah. Maybe it would still come out cheesy, but maybe it could be interesting. Like, it's oh, yeah, not, yeah. A, like, super well-treaded territory, so that that's cool. But instead, that was, yeah, just a branding exercise, mm-hmm. it turns out. Just a way to get her name catapulted to the top and get her book published by a more serious publisher. To me, the discourse around her is even worse because, uh, well, I wanted to say, this was on BuzzFeed, too, wasn't it? Yeah. That we read the article about her. And they also, oh, I think who it was knows? Like some it's just the internet. We all just feed. Google it or click on a link. We don't know where it comes yeah. from. Um, yeah. So somebody did like an interview where they follow her around and very like surreptitiously I think that say was things on that outline. discredit her. And then I saw, I read a different article that yeah. pulled those out and was pointing yeah. it out. In the, so when they're interviewing her, they go to a bookstore. Yeah. And Rupi Kaur is like, oh, I love that guy. And it's like a book of Kafka. Yeah. And then the author of the article goes, but she wasn't talking about Yeah, I know. Kafka. I couldn't believe it. I had to reread yeah. that. <laughs> she was talking about the book designer. And she's like, he's the best. And I want to like work with him. Or because take he from does him these book covers uh, that translate really well across platforms and look really oh, great yeah. as posters blown up or on social media. They're like very graphic or yeah. whatever. And that's what I'm saying. Like, if that's what your interest is, what that's what that actually design. <laughs> yeah, that actually made me like her a little bit more than anything else that I've read about her because it that makes it seem like what she's doing isn't actually poetry. It's like, that's... yeah, it's just some mixed media, you know, art. Yes, artistic and commercial pursuit. Like, that's what I was saying. It's weird that's that she's more trying to pursue becoming a poet, especially because. Poetry is not a particularly lucrative career. Yeah, like, but that's just part of. I guess it's that's part, just of part of the performance, yeah, like, that she's yeah. establishing. You know, yeah. Anyway, seamlessly we're getting... with her personality, but I wanted to say the discourse around her oh. is depressing because, in you know, like, Twitter full of poets, poets or whatever, um, especially younger ones, the discourse has gone from making fun of her to then too pe- too many people made fun of her and it made people uncomfortable. So then they tried wanted to defend her, and say. Um, well, I think people are just upset because she's a successful young woman brown of color. woman yeah. of color poet, and this is so it went from the same, pretty much you know maybe not literally the same people, but at least the same type of people who would criticize her then felt the need to defend her. But then it came out that oh maybe she's not sensitive enough to other people of color because she there was an article on I think it was also BuzzFeed that. Uh, some some other woman of color wrote criticizing her, and it was a thoughtful piece, but she had a, this conclusion that was like, but Rupi Kaur is making herself like the emblem of all people of color, mm-hmm. but she really just says these like generic things that could apply to anybody. So in that way, it's erasing people of color. Mm. So now, and this is like an interesting argument. Yeah. But now that's the takeaway. It's yeah. like, actually, she's not woke enough. Yeah. And also, she's a plagiarist because her like basic and obvious poems that are inspo are like other people have done that so yeah 
That reminds me of like the Cam Newton thing that happened where a female reporter asked him about routes, which I had to look up because I guess in football. No, no, no. Because I guess in football, when I think like maybe when you're doing like plays and then you know like where the like they draw the little arrows, that's like a route, right? That's like a route you take, I guess, like around a player or whatever. And you look for routes that'll take you, I guess, like as far as possible or something like that. I don't know. I really am not good at football, so or care about football. But I understand it to be something like that. Anyway, this female football reporter has been uh, covering him for, and the team for like years and asked him about routes and he laughed and said, oh, it's funny to hear a female talking about routes. And then everyone was like, oh wow, that's extremely sexist because who cares? Like she's uh, she's here to report on football. Presumably she understands like so he was saying, the basics oh, of football. It's, surpri- it's like, wow, this, this woman is talking in depth about football strategy. Yeah, but he, he said it in a way like, you're cute, cupcake. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> like that was very clearly the tone. I was just trying to clarify. I wasn't trying to say it. No. That's fine. Yeah. No, no. I'm just saying, like, it came off extremely sexist. And I guess, like, after the press conference, she caught up with him in, like, the locker room. And he didn't really apologize and just sort of was like, I guess I should have said reporters. It's funny that, like, reporters think they know anything about routes. But in the moment, it was so clear that it was about women. And anyway, then a bunch of people, some, like, blog that I think focuses on like black athletes or whatever pulled out a bunch of her tweets or like three of her tweets from five years ago one where she had called Dale Earnhardt a bitch ass n-word but with an a oh my god and then (laughs) yeah Dale Dale Earnhardt's white I know but he he said like the earth spins at 450 plus miles per hour and that's like 10 times faster than Dale Earnhardt, he's a, like, slow bitch-ass... Weird. Yeah. Okay. And then... Uh, I love when people... Yeah. I love when people... I don't know what to Think it's it. okay to say shit Yeah, like but they that. think it's okay to say shit like that in the context of, like, a joke that doesn't land at all. I know. It doesn't That's even make sense. I like when that happens. Um, and then, she, anyway, there's also another... A couple of tweets where she said that her dad was like the best at racist jokes, and that she was like laughing at his racist oh jokes as they, as they drove through Navajo country. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so there was a big debate online about like is she like good or bad or whatever, and a lot of people were basically trying to act like her racism or racist tweets from five years ago excuse Cam Newton's sexism towards her. You know, it, it was, yeah. like, so stupid. Anyway, just reminds me of that, the discourse going back and forth, like, but she's also problematic, you know? But that's like, really problematic. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah. That's totally yeah. problematic. I mean, she apologized. She said, like, there's no excuse for it. I was, like, old enough to know better, and that was, like, really stupid and whatever. Yeah. But, um, yeah, anyway, I don't know. I guess we were just talking about the internet and irony, and that's why we went off on this tangent. Yeah, no, it's good. It's not a tangent. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> But, How is uh, it not attention? It's good. It's good. It's fine. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the other one of the other weird things from that email that I was just reading, um, Bannon tells Yiannopoulos, there is no war correspondent in the West yet, dude, and you can own it and be remembered for three generations. I know. For three the generations. Fuck? 
as what? This, this what war him. correspondent is remembered for a single generation? Them, Do you know any war correspondents? I know like Christian Almanpour, yeah. you know? This is all the evidence you need that Bannon believes this white genocide narrative. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For I mean, sure. as if there's any doubt, but like but there's plausible so deniability, stupid. but here you go. I know, but it's also just so stupid. The shit he says is so stupid. That's what I was pointing out, like... What war correspondent do you have you ever even remembered? Little one, you'll be remembered for three generations. Like <laughs> what? They're gonna write songs and myths about Milo? Like yeah, please? Because this is the biggest deal ever. Yeah. The fact that uh, President Obama let in hundreds of Syrian refugees when we're creating millions. <laughs> yeah. You know, he said uh, all mosques are factories of hate. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Did you see? It was interesting when uh, Bannon joined the Trump campaign. Uh, Milo wrote to him and said, congrats, chief. And Bannon wrote back and said, you mean condolences? Mm -hmm. And uh, Yiannopoulos said, I admire your sense of duty, seriously. And Bannon said, you get it. Yeah, Yeah. I saw that. So they they weren't just trying to get Trump to win, right? That's just one tactic Mm -hmm. in this war that they're trying to win. Yeah. Yeah. In Bannon's mind, he is the protagonist of history, totally. right? It's not Trump. Trump isn't the central character. Totally. It's not the guy they got elected. That's just one piece of the puzzle, you know? Definitely. Leave that in when you edit this. <laughs> Should we wrap it up and eat before I... It's 2 o'clock, so I might just take this to go. Okay, cool. Well, we did some, we did some stuff. Yeah. We, we did work, you know, for, on our <laughs> personal brands yes. during lunch. Yes, very important. Yeah. In fact, we're not just podcasters. We're trying to... Become a personal brand. Yeah. A lifestyle brand. An the Adam brand. and Lisa oh. Cold Pizza Party I, lifestyle no, I, brand. No, I saved a draft tweet that I, I want to share from the Cold Pizza Party account. Okay. I'll say it because I think it's, it's that good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I forget it. <laughs> it was something like... Where's your phone? Just read it. It was something it. like... Uh, uh, we're an international brand. Podcasts can be downloaded internationally. Oh, nice. Pretty good, nice. right? Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. We're going to work on being funnier. <laughs> I feel like we used to be funnier. I we think were we were funnier when we were younger, but I think we've just become more and more earnest the older we yeah. get. And we don't have time to be like try to make jokes because we yeah. have like too much excitement about getting information out <laughs> or like analyzing. Yeah, things. you don't like, mean just on on mic. You mean in our lives? Yeah, no. Yeah. Like when I was younger, like I was so much more focused on being like social and being funny and stuff like that. And like writing papers in college was like a nuisance to my social life. Whereas now I feel like I would love to be able to go to like a class and like read shit and have like a professor guide a discussion and write papers and get feedback like genuinely on like my thoughts and analysis of some piece of text. Cause we do that like all the time now for fun. Like that's what our podcast is. Like mm-hmm. half the time we read shit yeah. and we analyze it and we bring in big ideas that we've heard in other places and we cite sources. Like we're basically writing papers. Like mm-hmm. we're just speaking. Yeah, it's super them. irritating. Yeah. Very well, pretentious. It is. And it takes <laughs> a lot of time when we do it like that instead of more on the fly like this. But that's like who I've become. Like I should have gone to college. Like I should have done not like a gap year, but like a gap decade and like go to college now. Now, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) I'm so much more prepared and interested in that, like doing that work now. I know. know? Me too. We didn't even do the reading. I, well, you did some reading. I never did the reading. I didn't. We always did papers. Well, it depended. I like the political science reading. I did that a fair amount, but we had a lot of growing. Yeah. Which is more important at the time. Yeah. Free college, but only at age 28 to 32. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you have to uh, be old enough to appreciate it, you little yeah. bastards. <laughs> <laughs> 
I had another tweet I thought was funny. Okay. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Um, no gods, no Patreon, no Patreon, no masters. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we were listening to uh, Noam Chomsky yesterday talk about no gods, mm-hmm. no masters. I yeah. love that saying. Yeah, me too. Yeah. In this podcast, we'll, we'll probably never do a Patreon or anything. Yeah. I can't no, imagine. I can't Unless we imagine. needed funds for something because... Yeah, I mean, like, we have to pay to have a premium SoundCloud, SoundCloud link and it'd be good if we eventually got a better mic yeah, situation. Yeah, um, Yeah, I mean, unless we incur some kind of cost or want to do something that requires more funds, I don't think we'll ever try to no. monetize this. In no small part because I, like, find that the idea of do what you love is, like, the most insidious idea out there. And the idea that we would take something that we enjoy doing for ourselves like podcasting yeah. and turn it into like an effort to make money just would i think make me hate the process of podcasting yeah and just politically it irritates me like it's different when you know the street fight guys are doing it and they've they well just, they've been at it for years yeah. and they only monetized it like in the last like year and it's and their literal job yeah. also and yeah they're really way more focused on putting out you know content like and doing shows and i think stuff that other people don't do also interested maybe a little bit more in like being i don't want to say entertainers because that makes it sound shallow yeah. but like they want to do live shows and they want to like do call-in shows and interact with people like in a way that is just a much bigger project than what we're interested True, yeah. in i think yeah and also they you just got to do what you can to survive and that's yeah what for sure to do, yeah know? yeah for um, sure i don't judge anybody who does that i'm just saying like for me personally. Oh, yeah. And I don't judge the Chapo people for doing that. They should. Like, they're making a good living now doing it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Although, again, they were people who, like, sought to be, like, in new media, who were writing articles, mm-hmm. who were in publishing, who were, like, doing stuff along those lines mm-hmm. anyway. So doing a podcast as an extension of their jobs or as another, you know, avenue of revenue, yeah. <laughs> as it were. Uh Makes a lot of sense, but for We're me... We're just two people in a trailer. Home. Yeah, I'm not trying to, like, become famous or, I don't know, like, an entertainer or build a career or a brand out of this. Mm-hmm. And I just personally have found that in the past, when it, like, when I was organizing and I tried to do something I love for money, yeah, it, like, made it the worst fucking experience in the world to the point where I still, for my own interests, have a hard time doing organ any kind of organizing or getting active yeah. because it just really ruined it for me um so but, i don't want to do that with something that we enjoy and that also feels really personal like we were having conversations like this before mm-hmm. we started recording them and i wouldn't want to like ruin that aspect of our relationship by turning it into something we fucking hate when it's something yeah i've always really loved about our relationship yeah not to get too sappy but <laughs> i love you <laughs> <laughs> that yeah you mentioned do what you love that that's the title of that Mia Tokamitsu piece, Peace and Jacobin, from a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I remember. It's very good, yeah. That really opened my mind. And and politically, I just feel against us trying to monetize this. Like, yeah. Yeah. Also, we couldn't. It wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't have, like, a big audience or anything. And but we're not good at doing that stuff. Yeah, and we fucking hate self, yeah, yeah. self-promotion, promoting. Every time I, like, have ever pasted this into the Dank Beam stash, even though, like, people are specifically, like, soliciting podcast mm-hmm. recommendations, I always feel so, like, blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even though I'm, like, really proud of the conversations we put out, it's just that, you know, I hate fucking doing self-promotion. Yeah, we should try to be a little better at it. I know. The you know, few times we've, like, actually tried to do it, it's, like, yielded more listeners and... 
yeah. that's cool. Like, I definitely want people to share and listen to our podcast. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's really hard for me to reconcile those two things, like yeah. wanting to have listeners and also just hating talking about myself, especially because, like, for me in, like, political organizing work, like, there's so much of that self-promotion yeah, I know. bullshit and networking and just basically, like, corporative speak, but kind of with the veneer of we're doing good for the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just, oh, I feel so I, well, averse to that. Yeah, and I spend a lot of my free time writing and, you know, making noise or music or whatever. And I've, I used to think, like, I wanted to do that because I wanted to participate in this world of art and stuff. Yeah. But especially now that I'm older, I see the people, I thought, I used to think the people who succeed, you know, they're the ones the who deserve it. Yeah. And it's just not true. They're the ones who were in the right place at the right time or promoted themselves or got promoted the right way. Or have rich I was parents looking, who help subsidize yeah. their careers or, or are quietly running a business on the side. Yeah. How uh, good are, are Radiohead, right? Yeah. But I was on their Wikipedia page yesterday. They didn't even work that hard themselves to be famous they yeah. they just continued their high school band through college on the weekends and then they put the album together with creep and got a, they wanted to work with like the dinosaur junior producer and stuff and they managed to do a, like a, a single with him and then some ar execs heard it and were like we want to make radiohead the next british Big nirvana yeah. and they tried that and that's how radiohead got their platform yeah. Yeah. and then they managed to do great stuff with it but like there's so much. Uh, there's luck a really good article. I think it was in the LA Review of Books. I sent it to you. I don't know if you read it. Uh, that was about exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, thinking originally that you know it stems from some kind of natural talent that these people are. Uh, oh, I said no. You did read it because it was about people talking about like how they weren't being paid when they were in the um, <laughs> the Whitney Biennial. Yes. My God. Yeah. Yeah, and talk, maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah, and her basic conclusion was like everyone needs socialism. Artists mm-hmm. definitely the need most. socialism <laughs> yeah. because that would actually allow for people who are good at their art to rise to the top she instead said, of basically falling to the wayside because they don't have the resources yeah. to continue. She said the truth is from her like extensive studies talking to artists and being in that world herself and doing some sort of like sociological studies about artists it seemed like the secret is nobody talks about it but Everybody either comes from a rich family, so they fall back on that, or they marry somebody who has enough money mm-hmm. that they can spend Keep their doing. time doing art, yeah. or they have a day job that they just don't talk about. Yeah. The people, and to the extent that you do get it through deserving it, it is people like Rupi Kaur, 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 right. who manage to like make their art sync up perfectly with the, the moment. S- the moment, including the mechanisms of success, yeah. promotion, right, or presentation. Yeah. That's why it's just, it, it makes so much sense to me to see that what she's really fascinated by is the presentation. Yeah, I think that's what made it really hideous to people because yeah. she was explicitly saying, like, this is how I make more money and get more famous is by having a book cover that translates across platforms. But and that's, her, that's, like, really ugly to people who want to think of themselves as intellectuals oh, yeah. and Maybe as that's... people who make it you know maybe that's why to me it was like endearing yeah because i'm trying to get over him yeah i think i mean the article i read specifically was so angry with her for being like a pseudo intellectual or whatever and Mm -hmm. i was like there are people who are real intellectuals you You know know what else was really cool in her profile was uh she said that she had was teaching a poetry class or whatever and that she was really excited that at the end of the class she proved to these people that are you know teens or young college students probably that like 
you can do it. You're a poet. You can be a poet. Mm-hmm. And that contrasts so deeply with, um, like, the nobody wants, I don't want to call myself a poet. Nobody, yeah. most of the people that I know and read who I think are really good don't want to call themselves poets. They either say they write poetry or they're writers. And, yeah. And there's all these, like, uh, I read a great article recently by, like, a comics artist who met this woman on a plane that she sat next to and saw her um, doodling or drawing something. And this, you know, like, 60-year-old woman was really excited and talking to her about what she draws. And this woman uh, draws stuff, too, or something like that. And she, and the woman was like, oh, it's so cool that you're an artist. And she, the, the young comics artist was like, you're an artist, too. Like, you've been doing this for 35 years or something. Yeah. And the woman was like, no, I'm not an artist, you know. And the point of the article was, like, eventually, at least in the article, hopefully in real life, the woman emailed her back and was like, you know, thank you for, yeah, it's true. Like, I've been doing this for 35 years. I can call myself an artist. There's such a, yeah, anyway, that's just another thing I thought was endearing, actually, about Rupi Kaur from that article. Yeah. So it's pushing against that. Yeah. Because people feel like you can't call yourself an artist or a poet until you, like, you've published a book or until you've actually made money on it or until that's your primary job and that's all bullshit none of that's true but also if you focus on making money off of it you're not a real artist or intellectual which also isn't true because that's what i'm saying like i think the fact that she was so clearly like talking about branding and marketing and stuff like that is what turned a lot of people off Mm -hmm. because i think one of the other sort of secrets about the art world or whatever is like don't talk about money whether that's why the artists at the whitney biennial yeah, biennial. They didn't know the other ones weren't, weren't getting, getting paid, paid too. Yeah. Yeah, and they just thought like, oh, I must be the only one who got a bad deal, but at least I got in here, and that'll lead to actually getting paid yeah. in the future. We always feel like we're not, you know, good enough, enough too. Yeah. And we're just lucky to be there. Yeah. I was thinking about that last night. That's what I was up late scribbling notes on my phone in. Yeah. Because I was listening to an anthropologist on the what's it called zero books podcast which is a horrible podcast i cannot recommend it <laughs> these episodes are really interesting um he's really irritating he's such a crank. yeah i know yeah we've tried to listen not just the host this guy oh, who's like okay. the anthropologist too they're all cranks yeah like of course they are you know they're, they're old yeah they're old socialists like now yeah. you can be a socialist on the internet and you have like a community yeah back then it was like and there's, like, a sense that, like, socialists are cute and young versus, yeah. like, just old assholes that are so <laughs> fucking tired of this world. Yeah. <laughs> Been let down too many times. And this fucking guy, man, he has such good information to share, but not only is he cranky about it, um, like, he's cranky with the host who's just trying to get him to say things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's just walking about the house, like, doing his housework as he's <laughs> on the podcast sharing stuff. So he's okay, like, we just did that, though. So I know, but we have a room mic and yeah, stuff. Like, yeah. that's part of our thing. Yeah, like, that's We true. want it to be. Yeah. We might stop because it doesn't work out that well. But, <laughs> but I like the idea of it. Yeah, I like the idea of it. But he is just, he has the phone, he's holding the phone with his shoulder and talking into it, and he's just pulling tape, plastic, like, packing <laughs> tape out the roll and putting it in the box. <laughs> that couldn't wait till later <laughs> yeah i don't know he's just walking around doing his chores that's Stuff's so funny and, yeah but he's talking about symbolic kinship and all this interesting stuff about how before so they're they're talking about how marx talks about pre-industrial societies how like agriculture changed everything mm-hmm. and you know the host wants to know if that's true and he's asking this guy who's a socialist and anthropologist and the guy's like telling all this really interesting stuff about how actually you know we don't have evidence for marriage existing. Yeah. Actually, 
agriculture seems to have existed first because like in the first books of the Torah in the original language, which are also the first books of the Bible, there's no word for wife. Mm. It's just his woman or his man or her man or whatever. Yeah. That's still how they say it in like whenever we watch like the Swedish shows and stuff. Oh yeah? Yeah. Whenever nice. they translate it it's uh, what they don't translate it, but you can like hear it because it's yeah. close enough to English. That's so that cool. she's when she's talking about her husband, she's saying my man. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, I don't know if they had agriculture societies or more pastoral, you know, like um, the Huns and stuff. Yeah. Maybe that's why that distinction remains to this day. But, um, and that's so cool too. Maybe that's why they have a more liberal aspect towards relationships. Yeah, maybe. Language really is like a cage sometimes. For all all the time. It like literally governs how we can think. (laughs) But he was talking about symbolic kinship being more fundamental to human societies. And the notion... And this gets back to this alt-right shit, too. Like, the notion that race is fundamental to the tribe, that is a long post-agriculture distinction. Like, Mm. that doesn't make sense until you have agriculture and nation-states, even, um, to define what a race is. Because back during the tribal times, um, not everybody in the tribe was co-sanguinous. They didn't all share blood. And they couldn't, or else you'd have a bunch of deformed babies all the time. Um, So instead, they had means of adopting people into the tribe, like circumcision for Jewish people. Mm. So back then, you didn't have to be born Jewish, right. you know, as much as you do now, or even, yeah, you could just do the rituals and learn the language, which yeah. that still exists a bit in Judaism, I think, um, and become Jewish. Right. And that's just the way things were back then. Like, we didn't have these notions of race and stuff. So what I was thinking is that now we live in this capitalist culture, right? So now a kinship group is like, this art form or whatever that you want to succeed in or your job or your career or whatever but the only ritual you have to prove that you're part of this in-group this tribe is like your achievement Mm. and the work that you do Mm -hmm. and there's not even like gatekeepers that see your work and say now you're accepted right um instead nobody knows if they're accepted they're just constantly trying to prove themselves and prove themselves to other people and we're all just suspicious of whether we're really in this group or not and we're all just trying to prove it to ourselves and other well, people. Well, how many, I mean, people talk all the time about this um, notion of, I feel like a fake, yeah. right? And everyone, like, I used to think like that at my job all the time, even though I was, like, doing the work of organizing, but I still constantly felt like I'm a fake, like I'm not as good as this as I should yeah. be, or I'm not getting enough done, or if someone just knew, I don't know, what a, like, fuck up I am then they definitely would you know like fire me and I'm a total fake like even though again the work is actually getting done yeah you're doing the work and you're actually constantly working harder to prove to yourself that you're not a fake but it's hard to do actually do that and I've heard like uh I think it was like um Tom Hanks say the same thing oh, that, Tom Hanks. that he believes that he, he that like he's like I'm I feel like a fake and Man. any minute now everyone's gonna realize that I'm like a terrible actor yeah. and they're gonna be like I don't know why we gave him all these jobs yeah, or totally. accolades or whatever you know who probably never felt that way was like IBM execs in the 50s you know <laughs> Well, because, you know who never feels that way is Steve fucking Bannon. Yeah. I mean, he believes full-heartedly that, not that he's not, just not a fake, I'm telling you, he's the protagonist of history. He is the one who is yeah. here to change the course of Western civilization. I know. But people who have that attitude in life, in this world, succeed in this world. Yeah. You know, like yeah. That self-making 
mythos. Yeah. You know? That's yeah. what we prize. Uh, that's the type of self-talk he models. Like, yeah, for, to himself. But also to his subordinates, like um, Milo yeah. and stuff. The, totally. The talk, I mean, it's not self-talk exactly. You are but social media. Yeah. Yeah. It, he is, is that self-making mythos that obviously a lot of us lack even very yeah. successful people yeah it's not normal to be that way yeah That's but weird. he's modeling that behavior the way you do for a child right yeah that that explains how he could like reinvent himself so many times too yeah from the military or navy or whatever to a finance to guy finance, to, to movies hollywood yeah. and shit yeah you know, to this, politics yeah. yeah yeah but most of us can't do that like him and rupee car can <laughs> <laughs> yeah Okay, well, I think we should wrap it up there because you need to go back to work. Yeah, I'm late. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. I'm going to take my food with me. Okay. Yeah. And I need to eat. So hopefully people enjoyed this freewheeling. Uh, We're doing like two episodes. Yeah. We just recorded one yesterday which so. i'm now thinking maybe we'll release that one next week yeah it's less because we're going yeah it's less timely and we're going on vacation after that yeah so this way we'll have actually two episodes to release right before we go on vacation cool yeah okay okay so hopefully people will enjoy those and uh peace bye